This is the reading of God's word. We are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yeah, you may be seated. Hey, and before we start, uh, well, actually, as we're starting, I feel like I need to issue apologies. If any of you teenagers uh, or families of teenagers came home last week from the teen retreat with a case of the stomach bug, that may have originated with us. Uh, So we need to apologize for that. Uh, Two of our girls apparently were carriers of that, and they came home in about an hour after coming home from the retreat retreat. well, moved into the bathroom and kind of set up shop there for the rest of the evening. It was delightful. And I thought we were going to have the opportunity to blame it on the Tuesday night grace group that brought taco dinner to the retreat on Saturday night. But we couldn't do that because Amy, I forgot, Amy had actually gotten it on Friday, the day before all of that. So she was probably the initial, well, who knows who the initial carrier was. But the point was, uh, apologies for that. And, and yeah, last week, last weekend, was a delightful time of all sorts of fun sounds coming out of the bathroom and people just delightfully hugging and, and becoming quite acquainted with, with the toilets in, in the bathroom. And in our house, we are just terribly afraid of the stomach bug, such that we have some people in our home who will not remain nameless, that when the slightest hint of the stomach bug has reached the home, they will go into their room and we won't see them for probably about a week and a half. Right? They come out all disheveled and shaggled and like, you know, the eyes are squinting because you know, finally see the dawn of light. Right? But we hate the stomach bug and we just hate that whole thing. Right? And so, which is very kind of poignant uh, to come out of that weekend into Revelation 3 here where Jesus is saying the taste of this church is so uncomfortable that I would rather vomit. You out of my mouth. I know that in the ESV, it kind of tames it down to spit you out of my mouth. But actually, the Greek word there is a meo, which literally means to vomit as a sign of disgust. Okay. So, let me save the best letter for last here. <laughs> right. There is something going on in this church in Laodicea that the taste of which is so repulsive that Jesus would rather choose <laughs> the unchoosable, the unmentionable, than to vomit them out of his mouth. And so here's the question, like what in the world is going on in the Laodicean church such that that would be the case? That's the one thing we're going to try to get at this morning. The second thing we're going to have to talk about is the possibility that what is happening in the Laodicean church 
is something that is very or all too easy for churches of our stripe uh, to slip into. Uh, So we're going to have to talk about that. And then three, uh, we're going to look at why it's just utter foolishness for the Laodicean church to stay in what is going on here. Uh, because and on account of the good news of Christ. All right, so those are three things we're going to talk about. So first of all, uh, what is it? What in the world is going on in the Laodicean church that Jesus has this reaction of wanting to vomit them out of his mouth? And uh, I feel like we need to say right out the bat, it's not that they are lukewarm Christians. I don't know how many, I've heard numerous times, it's going back to my youth pastor days, right? We'd have speakers who come in and, you know, talk to teens or whatever. And they say, okay, how many of you here feel like you are on fire for the Lord, right? You are piping hot Christians and you're ready to do anything. And everybody, well, I don't know, maybe one or two people put their hand up. and Or then he would say, well, how many of you are cold and dead, you know, Christians, just kind of lifeless? Well, nobody would really raise their hand there and say, well, well, how many of you are right in the middle here? You're not really hot. You're not cold. You're kind of in that lukewarm category. And everybody raise their hand. And the trap has been set, right? Because he's going to say, well, you know that Jesus says there's that kind of Christian that he just wants to spit out of his mouth. Okay? Uh, That is a a false interpretation of the passage. (laughs) It is not that Jesus prefers lukewarm Christians or or prefers cold Christians to lukewarm Christians. What we... Maybe you would know, starting to realize by now that these letters are very contextual. And Jesus uses things that they would be very familiar with in their life to make a point. And it just so happens that the people in Laodicea would know what it means to have Luke, the taste of lukewarm water in their mouth. Uh, because uh, Laodicea had a terrible water supply. You actually couldn't drink any of the water that was underneath the town of Laodicea. They had to have their water piped in. And it would come in from two directions. It would come in from the north in Hierapolis, which was famous for its uh, medicinal hot springs. Right? So they would pipe water down from Hierapolis into Laodicea. Or it would come from the southeast, from Colossae, which had really cold mountain springs or mountain streams. Right? They would take that water and pipe it into Laodicea as well, too. The problem was, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was neither really hot or cold. It was just kind of lukewarm. Right? And if you've ever, I don't know, stumbled into a diner for an early morning breakfast and you say, hey, just give me a cup of coffee, will you? And uh, you get your coffee and, you take, and it's lukewarm. It's kind of like, ah. You know? Or if you're really thirsty and you're, you, know, you go to grab a, a drink of water and you've got no ice and the water coming out of the tap is just kind of lukewarm. It's like, ah, this is it's not really doing it. Right? That's the idea. Like Laodiceans had this perpetual curse of just always having to drink this sort of tepid, lukewarm water. And they all knew sort of this, this taste of, ah, I just want to spit this stuff out. And what Jesus is saying here is just simply, okay, what's going on in your church That taste that you have when you take that lukewarm water, that's the taste that I have when I look at what's going on in this church. Okay? So again, what is going on? Well, he actually starts to say it there. He said, you say, you are rich, and I have prospered. Uh, Which, if they were in Laodicea, they probably had, because Laodicea was uh, pretty accomplished, pretty successful, 
Uh, Laodicea was a town where, you know, he had major trade routes running through. So there's a lot of money flowing in and out of Laodicea. They had a huge banking industry in Laodicea. So, there, yeah, it was a wealthy town. Uh, Laodicea was famous for uh, this black, silky, jet black wool that would come off of these black sheep. They thought they were black sheep because of the water that they were drinking. But everybody wanted this wool because it was rare and you could make this, you know, silky black you know, clothing or whatever. And so if you had sheep uh, in Laodicea, you were, you were, your commodities were in high demand. Another thing Laodicea was well known for is that there was a, uh, a medical facility of some sort. It was actually connected to the uh, temple of Menkaru. And it was particularly skillful in treating eyes. And they had developed like a particular ointment that was just sought out all over, you know, that part of the world for care and treatment of the eye. Which is all to say that Laodicea was very accomplished, very successful, very prosperous. In fact, so much so. You remember last week we were talking about Philadelphia and how it got rocked by major earthquakes and they needed literally a bailout from the Roman Empire to get them back on their feet. Same thing happened in Laodicea. It was part of that same region. They had an earthquake just kind of leveled the city. Rome comes in, offers the same bailout package to Laodicea. Hey, we'll help you get back on your feet. And Laodicea says, thanks, but no thanks. We got it. We can take care of ourselves. And they did. They rebuilt the city. It was far more beautiful than it was even before that. And so here's the thing, right? Some of that mindset, the mentality has trickled down into the church, right? So you say you are rich. You say you have prospered, which is not necessarily bad in and of itself, but here's the bad part. And you say, I need nothing. Apparently, not even Jesus himself, right? Because where is Jesus in relation to the church of Laodicea? He's on the outside knocking on the door. That's the other uh, blatant part of misinterpretation of this passage. This passage often gets misinterpreted. That line where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not an evangelistic line that he is saying to outsiders, unbelievers, people outside the church. Do you see it? It's the people that he, it's what he's saying to the insiders. He's saying it to his church. Hello, I'm standing at the door and knocking because I'm on the outside. Because in your pride and in your self-sufficiency, and you're saying, hey, thanks, I got, we don't need anything, I got it. You have relegated me to the outside. Jesus is relegated as a door, to a door-to-door salesman in his own church, going around, knocking on doors, offering his grace, his power, his presence, his mercy to the church. And the church is saying, yeah, you know what, I think we're doing okay. Thanks, but no thanks. Now do you see why for Jesus... This is, there's something repulsive about this. His own church has no need of him. And they've got it all taken care of. So Jesus actually says to him in stark terms, actually, you say you're rich, you say you've prospered, you say you need nothing, but actually you're wretched and you're pitiable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. (laughs) Uh, We've been casually talking about the possibility of just kind of updating, cleaning up our our website and maybe doing, you know, we thought about maybe cleaning up and redoing the sign out here, out front or whatever. And so the conversation came up, hey, do we, do we ever, we want a tagline for our church, you know, like that they put on their website or put on their signs out there. 
I think we're straying away from that. But coming off of this, you know, maybe we say, hey, well, let's put on the tagline on there, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. <laughs> we should probably leave the naked part off so the authorities don't come in. And, uh... Okay, but, you know, here's the thing. If we're honest, right, at best, we'll, we'll do just that. We'll just kind of laugh at it and say, oh, that's kind of funny. Okay, but we're not really serious, are we? <laughs> or at worst, we would say, well, no, we can't do, possibly do that because that's not who we are not wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, naked, all of this. Okay, which starts to get to this uh, second point that we got to be careful because this mindset, this mentality, and this dangerous posture of the church in Laodicea, it, it can very easily trickle down, or it can very easily be the condition that our brand of what, what, some, somewhat successful American suburban churches that's the posture that we can very easily slip into if we're not careful. I mean, think about it. We talk about a lot how, you know, our culture has this very robust individualism. And the thing is, when you ever hear, you hear about American individualism, you often will hear another word attached onto it of American rugged individualism. Right? Which means that we, uh, we take pride in our ruggedness. We take pride in our rugged individualism in our self-sufficiency. We take pride in the fact that we have picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and made a life for ourselves. We take pride in the fact that uh, we have accomplished something and we are enjoying a life and we are not dependent and we are not needy people. And let's face it, you know, what are the American suburbs, but it's full of people who have made a life for themselves, right? Who have done fairly well or generally successful and don't often think of themselves as impoverished and needy. So, you know, that rugged American individualism, it tends to do two things in our culture. It gives us a pride and self-sufficiency and also gives us a, a real insecurity about weakness, about having weakness, let alone showing weakness and other people seeing our weaknesses. And you see this playing out all over the place. You see it on the world stage right now, which is all about showing strength and not showing weakness and not backing down in the face of opposition or whatever. Uh, you see it, people talk about how in our, uh, in our culture these days, there is this decreasing uh, sense of ingenuity or that spirit of ingenuity is on the decline largely in part because people are so terrified about taking a risk, doing something new, and falling flat on their face, and everybody seeing them as a weak failure. Or if I'm being honest, we could bring it even down further to the interpersonal level, and I could tell you how you know, some of the struggles that Amy and I face in our marriage are largely because uh, if she would dare to bring criticism to me or expose certain weaknesses or things that I haven't done right in the home or in relationship, my first impulse because of my insecurity is to jump to my defense and try to tell her why she's not seeing it right or she's misunderstanding the situation. And so I completely blow past whatever point she's trying to make. I don't listen. I immediately go into self-defense mode. <laughs> she says... <laughs> Amy would tell you that probably the best time of our marriage was about a year ago at this time when I decided, well, maybe the, the Spirit said to me, hey, why don't for Lent you try giving up your self-defense me mechanisms? <laughs> and so I told her, and so if you want to bring things up, I'm just going <laughs> to... She 
probably wondering if I'm going to do that again this year or not. I'm still praying that out. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> right? So that robust individualism, that, that rugged individualism, that proud sense of security, well, what it can do is it can trickle its way down into the church. And the real danger of that is that when it works its way into the, into the church, Jesus gets relegated to the outside. His grace, his mercy, his presence, his power is stuff that we just kind of keep safe on the peripheries. You know, you can see it in the church when maybe our language about salvation is all in the past. And we talk about Jesus as the one who has saved, not Jesus as the one who is continuing to save his church. We talk about salvation as, you know, this event in the past where I turned from the things that were not right in my life. I entrusted my, my life to Jesus. I received his forgiveness and his salvation. And, okay, I'm good to go. I got my forgiveness. I got my ticket to the afterlife or whatever. And I got it from here. And the fact of the matter is, based on the, you know, the New Testament, is that we don't have it from there. That there are still lingering things in our lives and our hearts that need to be refined need to be rooted out and sanctified, right? And so Jesus doesn't just offer his initial work of salvation to us and then say, okay, I'll see you at the end line. No, he offers himself daily to us to be that ongoing redeemer, the one who is all too willing to apply his grace and his mercy to our struggles, to our temptations, to our weaknesses as we bring these things to him, right? But sometimes in the church, we'll talk about you know, how in the past we turned from all that and gave our life to Jesus and on we go. But man, we, we forget that salvation is a day-to-day, ongoing thing in the life of the church. Well, you see it in the church when uh, we're slow to confess publicly. and We're con- slow to confess sin and weakness with one another. Even though the New Testament, even though James tells us, hey, confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. Or even though Paul will tell us, hey, the part of the Christian life or the way that Christ's grace comes to you is through the family, through the body, praying for one another, holding one another accountable, being sources of encouragement and strength for one another. But when we hold back our struggles, when we hold back our weaknesses, when we hold back our points of temptation and sinfulness, what are we doing? But we're not letting that grace come to us. We're not opening ourselves up to receive the prayer and the encouragement and the accountability of the body. We're saying, Jesus, thank you for the grace you give, but just you keep that out there. I'm good to go. And actually, the most devastating thing about you know, the pride of self-sufficiency and not acknowledging weakness and sin and, or our neediness of Christ is that our testimony to Jesus gets shot. Because think about how in the world are we going to convince a watching world of their need for Jesus and his redeeming worth and his value for them if we are not willing to testify to our own need of him and our own neediness and our own impoverishment? Or how are we going to do that with one another and convince one another that day by day you need to be coming to Christ and leaning on him and holding fast to him if we ourselves are not modeling before one another that desperate neediness that sense of impoverishment that says, I need the grace of Jesus in my life today, or I'm in a whole lot of trouble. Right? Well, okay, so if that's the problem, and you see it in the Laodicean church, and you see how it can be so easy to just trickle down into 
you know, our churches where we do take pride in our self-sufficiency and we're insecure about our weaknesses and, you know, we put on our good faces and our rosy and our nice clean outfits or whatever and come to church here and celebrate, right? When it's so easy just to trickle down, like, what do we do about that? What are some things, uh, how can we, we work on that together? And so I just mentioned a few things here before we wrap this up. I'd say, first of all, uh, we, we acknowledge the problem. Uh, we acknowledge that pride is a deadly thing. And see, here's the thing, right? Pride and insecurity tend to be hidden struggles. It's rare that people come out and say, yeah, I struggle with pride. Or the thing about insecurity is we don't like to face our insecurities. We don't like to feel our insecurities. And so we just kind of push them down and try not to deal with them and try not to let them come up to the surface where we or anybody else would see them, right? So all this stuff stays hidden. But man, throughout the history of the church, the church has viewed pride as one of the deadliest of sins. In fact, through the history of the church, pride was always seen as the root of all seven deadly sins. Why? Because pride keeps you from the life of Christ. Pride convinces you that you're okay, that you've got this, and you don't need that day-to-day grace and mercy of Jesus. You see how deadly that would be? Right, so we acknowledge the problem, first of all. We acknowledge our tendency and our bent towards that and our rugged individualistic culture. Uh, I think, too, as the passage says, we'd be zealous to repent regularly. Uh, Martin Luther, when he took out his hammer and he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, you know what thesis number one was? Anybody? Yeah, we don't have any. Where's our Lutherans over here? Come on. <laughs> oh, look at him cowering in shame. He said, when Jesus said, when Jesus called for repentance, Jesus is willing that the entire life of the Christian be one of repentance. That's thesis number one. <laughs> that when Jesus says repent, he is willing that the entire life of the Christian be one of repentance. Man, which sounds pretty... Oh, self-deflating or, uh, you know, pretty harsh there, Martin Luther. But can you see for, it's anything but the case, right? Jesus says, look, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And what is repentance? But repentance, it's it's literally the Hebrew word uh, shuv, which means to turn around. So repentance is just daily turning away from, I don't know, things in my heart and life that would lead me away from the life of Christ. Or it's daily turning away from other gods or other things that I've entrusted my life to and a thought of more value than Jesus, right? It's turning away from those things. It's turning away from temptation and sin that I struggle with, right? To move closer to the life of Christ, Right, so can you see how actually the mark of a healthy and a growing and a maturing Christian is one who is daily repenting and daily diving deep into their heart and life and saying, where are those things that I need to turn from and I need to confess and I need to repent from and flee to Christ instead? Or a mark of a healthy, growing, maturing church is a church that is regularly repenting. Church is regularly repenting and confessing when they come together for corporate worship, like we did a little earlier with that song, Jesus I Come. Or a church that is regularly confessing and repenting of sins when they gather for, together in smaller groups and not hiding those things. And a church is regularly confessing and repenting when individually they're at home and they're praying things out with their Heavenly Father. 
Right? That's the mark of a, of a growing and mature church, a church that is advancing in the life that Jesus has for them, a church that is advancing and growing into the character and the demonstration of all that Christ is. Right? So we acknowledge the problem. We're zealous to repent, as the passage says. And I think, two, uh, three, we, uh, we embrace our weakness. We embrace maybe, you know, that, that <laughs> what Jesus is saying here to the church. Say, actually, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And maybe we aren't so quick to laugh at that or push that aside and maybe say, yeah, you know what? Because of the lingering things going on in my heart and life, yeah, there is some of that wretchedness and poverty and blindness. You know, and we embrace that so as to find in, in, in greater ways, in greater measure, the life and the power and the grace of Christ to us. Right? When you think about it, so the, you know, American culture says, you're, you know, embrace your strength. And your strength is your greatest weapon. Right? But when you come to the Bible time and time again, you get this picture. Actually, no, your weakness is your greatest strength because it's in your weakness that maybe you will find and come across the power of God at work in you. Right, just think about the whole biblical storyline. Just think about like major characters who advance the biblical storyline from stage to stage. And you think of the major heroes, if you will, of the Bible. Right, these are all terribly weak and deeply flawed characters. Right, whether it's Abraham, you know, Abraham and Sarah who are old and barren and at key points in life struggle with faith. Yet, they're the father of all of God's people in the Old Testament. When you think about Moses... Uh, who's apparently a bad communicator and has a laundry list of reasons why he shouldn't be the ones to go lead God's people out of Egypt. And yet God uses him and his weakness to bring his people through the greatest redemptive event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. You know, you think of David, right? I don't have to tell you about David, the great king of God's people, yet one who struggled with lust and adultery and even murder. When you come into New Testament, you think about Peter, who was terribly impulsive, and at one of the most critical hours, right, was overcome with fear and denied Christ before the watching world. And yet it's Peter that Jesus says, man, upon this rock, among others, I'm going I'm, I'm I'm to build my church. And it's, it's Peter that he says, I need you to go tend and care for my flock and care for my sheep. You think of the Apostle Paul who pleads with Jesus three times, this gnawing weakness that he has, that Jesus would take this weakness from him. And what does Jesus say to him? No, because my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, right, and that's kind of the whole point. Like, right, when we come to embracing weakness and we come to embrace the end of ourselves, what does that do? But it opens wide that door for Jesus to kind of step through with all of his power, all of his grace, all of his steadfast faithfulness to us, right? So can you see how actually your weakness can be your greatest strength? Because then it's not all of a sudden, it's not about you and your life and what you accomplish. It's not about you, but what God can now do in and through you. And so we hear part of these words of Jesus that sting a little bit. But, man, we let them do their refining work to, you know, give us the freedom. and say, yeah, you know what? I do struggle in these areas, so I need the power of grace in my li- of, of Jesus in my life. Man, one just little testimony of this. <laughs> I've really been enjoying our grace group of late. Uh, on our Wednesday night, we've been doing a study on parenting. And part of the thing that's been just most encouraging about it, as Amy and I... <laughs> you know, are, are all too aware of our weaknesses and inadequacies and failures as parents, 
man, what incredible encouragement is to sit in a room of other parents who, not to, not to name names or not to call anybody out, but who are all too willing to say, yeah, me too. <laughs> and I'm struggling in this area, or here's where I'm weak, or I'm hearing what we're, we're looking at in the passage. Man, I really have a hard time with this. This is something God is going to have to work on in my own heart and life. One of the greatest sources of encouragement is just to be in an empathetic room of other people who aren't just sitting on their own weaknesses, but are opening that up and saying, yeah, you know what? I struggle with that too. And here's, and man, just to be a part of that kind of community and to together lean on the grace of Jesus. This has been such an encouragement. So that's just a side little thing. Man, if you're not doing that in your grace group, or if you're not a part of a grace group, find one and go ahead and be open and brazen about your sin and weakness. See if others will join you. If they don't, you can come over to our grace group, I guess. But <laughs> we're a bunch of sinners and apparently uh, all too willing to acknowledge that. You know, but here's the last point, And this is why it's foolish for the Laodiceans not to hear this and turn. It is, it is this fact that Jesus stands ready to offer to them life to the full, right? That Jesus is saying to them, come to me and buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Or come to me and buy white garments to cover your shame. Or come to me and buy true salve to anoint and to heal your eyes, right? These are all, again, contextual things that the Laodicean church would have heard and knew all about because these are the things they're famous for, right? But notice Jesus is not saying to them, you know what? You guys taste despicable. I'm done with you. I'm taking that lampstand. I'm shutting your doors. I'm taking my services to some other church who will recognize me. And and, no, but he says to them, hey, I stand here and I'm offering to you true wealth. I'm standing here, I'm offering you true clothing to cover your shame. I'm standing here offering you true healing. Or he says to them, almost take heart because those I love, I reprove. Right? Do you hear me? I am reproving you. I'm calling you out here because I love you. Or because I love you, I'm standing at the door in a humiliating posture, I would think, and knocking. <laughs> Until you hear it and you open it up and you let me in. In other, in other words, do you see how foolish it would be for the Laodiceans to continue in their stubborn self-sufficiency? Because this Jesus stands ready with this unrelenting, wild, almost unimaginable faithfulness and love for the church, even in their weaknesses. That they won't admit. I mean, that's the great blessing for us. Is that we have this, see, that's, that's why it's a wonderful privilege for Christians to confess and to open up and to repent. Because we don't have a God who's standing there ready to hammer us when we confess and we expose our weaknesses. But we have a God who is unrelenting in his faithful love towards us. I was listening to a, uh, a lecture this week by Brene Brown, I think her name was. And she had given a TED Talk, I guess, several years ago. Where in that course of that TED Talk, she just happened to let it out that she had suffered a real mental and emotional breakdown in recent years. She's a therapist, and she was you know, just kind of mentioning that to the crowd. And she said she went home, and that, that night she was just kind of horrified at what she had done. She had just told five, 600 people about one of her great weaknesses, this emotional mental breakdown. And she was horrified by that. And then she found out that this was going to be on YouTube. And she, she wrote her friend and she told her friend, oh my goodness, if another five, 600 people see us, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. <laughs> and the thing goes viral. So that five, six million people saw this video and it said it totally wrecked her. But then what she found out as people were 
you know, responding and writing and emailing and reaching out is that there is this incredible hunger to actually be able to open up and share weakness and struggle. That this insistent command to show strength and to not reveal weakness is exhausting and it's crushing. You know, and in any other religious system, right, you think about it, you, you work, you strive, you perform to earn the love of the gods. Right? But with Jesus, he's saying, no, 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 no. I, I loved you first. And I loved you when you weren't proving yourself worthy of my love. I loved you when you were rebels and traitors and enemies. And I loved you to the point of laying down my life sacrificially so that you could be forgiven and restored and brought back into this family. I loved you first. Or, you know, in other religions, right, the goal of repentance is to earn, again, the favor of the gods. Maybe they'll turn and look with favor towards you if I repent and I fall on my knees to prostrate and repent with Jesus. No, he loved us first. And so repentance is a privilege. Because he loves us, because he cares for us, and he is unrelenting in his steadfastness towards us, man, we have this privilege to regularly turn from the things that would pull us away from Jesus and come into his life. Right, And as we see that and we embrace that and we live that out, that's what also enables us to be free to do that together with one another. And to not just always have these nice rosy faces on and you know, hide the weaknesses, but actually just expose it. And to be vulnerable and to be bold in our weakness because the love of Christ covers us. And man, I imagine that as we do that with one another, you'll see some willing respondents all too ready to jump in with you on that. And boy, I bet you as we do that more and more, and as sin is exposed and brought to the light, and we pray for one another, encourage one another, hold each other accountable, man, we'll grow into the richness of Christ. And I imagine as we do that, our, our testimony to Christ and his worthiness and all that he offers to desperate sinners will advance as well, too. And in a world that is floundering, trying to keep up its appearance of strength and feeling the crushing weight of that, man how desperately do they need to see a shining testimony of the love and faithfulness of Christ that was willing to love in spite of our weakness. So a simple prayer this morning is that God would keep us from becoming the lay of the sea in church. And he would help us to see a new, his unrelenting, wild, unimaginable love for us that perpetually stays there at the door for us, such that it would lead us to freely Confess, repent, turn to him, embrace our weakness, find his strength. It would lead us to share that with one another and lead us in increasing measures test in testimony to the glory of our risen Savior. And so may he do that for his own honor and glory in the advance of Christ's name in us and through us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.